There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. All right, everyone. Welcome back. Happy Tuesday. Another episode of A Little More Good coming at you. We're excited for this episode and glad you all could tune in to the show today. Yes, we've got a great conversation with our dear friend, Juno Kim. Yes, the return. The return of Juno Kim. We're so, so excited to have him back on. He's just, he's one of a kind, truly. He is. Yes. I love these follow-up kind of part two conversations too, because we've kind of built that origin stories and built that base and we can just kind of dive deep into the to the big questions yeah and juno is the kind of guy that you can dive deep with yes and explore big questions and i mean even post pod conversation we were chatting and we already were like oh this is a whole nother conversation we need to have so uh juno definitely definitely uh will be back and um but before we get even to that we got to talk about this episode. Yes. This is incredible. So we got into colonial disembodiment. We got into the interconnectedness of, of all things. Um, we talked a lot about um, spaciousness mm-hmm. and finding finding your own spaciousness. Um, self-discipline is a myth. The mind over matter yeah. is, is a myth. Um, when they're really, you know, spoiler, mind and body are interconnected getting back to that idea of interconnectedness uh the mindset of seeing something for the first time all the time uh is is just a great conversation about about those things about finding connection about finding embodiment about finding awareness and and the tools that we can can use and put to action so that we're living our day-to-day with intention finding habits and uh living those habits with intention um, like you mentioned, Juno's lives life with depth and curiosity and, and it's exciting to see where he is exploring. Cause I think it's a path of, of curiosity and a path of, of the student, you know, wanting to constantly learn more. Yes. Yes. Being, being fully embodied in who we are, how we're living, being thoughtful, intentional, bringing, bringing the awareness to you know, ourselves and allowing that to, to just like shape who we are and who we are becoming. I, I love it. He's so full of wisdom and just, yeah, we really get to dive in and go deep with him on this one. 
All right, a few things before we let this one roll. Uh, if you guys have been enjoying a little more good, uh, it means a lot to us and helps us spread the good message. If you guys can uh, throw out a like and a review wherever you're listening to your, your podcasts, um, Spotify, um, Apple Podcasts, Google. All those places. All those places. You yes. know, the, the likes, the reviews, the shares, they help us in a, in a big way in, in sharing the good message. So we appreciate all of you listening. Um, and before we roll, a word from this week's sponsor. This week's podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Zach and I have been um, just really enjoying leveling up our, our daily routine with this micro habit that is just uh, such a good, good thing to do. Get up first thing in the morning, fill up some water, dump a little scoop of Athletic Greens AG1 drink formula in there and just shake it and enjoy. It's kind of like it's that part of that morning ritual now. It's the shake and wake, baby. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I like that. But it is. It's so good. Athletic Greens, not only um, full of 75 high-quality ingredients, probiotics, minerals, vitamins, all that good stuff that you need. It's easy. It's easy to do. And it's not like some big routine of like, oh, you got to get the juicer or smoothie. Like you can just literally wake and shake. There we and go. And drink it and you feel good. It's such a. It's such an easy habit. That um, affords you so much goodness in your life. I'm hooked, and so many people have been asking me what I think because yeah. I I take so I've experimented with so many supplements and powders over the years. Yeah, and I, you know, I wholeheartedly love my AG1. I look forward to it. It's the first thing I do when I wake up, and it's definitely hands down the best greens powder that I've that I've ever taken. So, um, I've got a full endorsement. And putting my my years of taking green powders and supplements, yes, yes. I'm I'm all in with AG1. It's my my favorite uh, way to start the day. It's so good, especially now. Like you know, we're kind of midwinter, colds, flus, all that stuff. Like you want to make sure you have every, you know, bit of nutrient and everything in you to help help your body just like remain healthy or fight off these things that are flying around through the air. And I mean, it's there's no easier easier way to take advantage of reclaim your health and really protect and arm your immune system with this convenient daily nutrition like i said it's one scoop throw it in with a cup of water that's it no need for all of your supplements that you used to have zach's got a whole empty cupboard where all those supplements used to be yeah looks out for your health and looks after you know all that cabinet space there we go yeah. real estate is expensive you know that's right all right so if uh, our listeners want to shake and wake like uh you and i dean what's the best way to uh, get athletic greens into your daily routine yeah we got we got your hookup to make it easy athletic greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune supporting vitamin d and five free travel packs with your first purchase so easy throw them in the throw them in the bag suitcase whatever you got it all you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash more good again that's athleticgreens.com slash more good to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance there we go. Get on it, friends. Don't miss out. Don't miss out, especially during this winter season. Yeah. You know, everyone's got the sniffles, so get your greens and push those sniffles away. Oh. All right. Time for this week's episode. All right. All right. We're sitting here with a friend of the pod, returning guest, fellow Earth body, <laughs> soaring in this plane of cosmic bodies. Actually, can I stop one second? Yeah. Um, are you gonna do any sort of like intro of like who I am? Mm-hmm. Well, that'll be after, like that'll be recorded after, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Can we yeah, just yeah. start? Do you want me to say anything? 
Oh yeah, but I'll send it to you after because okay. you'll record that later. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, sweet. Cool. Yeah. I always forget that. Okay. All right, starting again. All right, all right. <laughs> We're sitting here with our good friend, returning to the podcast for the second time, the legendary, the lovely, mm-hmm. the embodied Juno Kim. <laughs> yes. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Juno. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're so glad to have you back. It is always, uh, I even remember last time, it was the first time we met. Mm. And just from the moment you walked in, there was this lightness and grace and just like, uh, you just create um, an environment, a space, Mm. wherever you go. And same goes for today. It was just, I was so looking forward from the moment I woke up this morning, literally the first thing I thought about was like, Yes, we get to chat with Juno today. It was just, yeah. So I'm very, very happy to connect with you again, have you back. And pre-pod, you just kind of grounded us with a little mm. meditation, chance to focus on our breath, our bodies, to come back to this moment, who we are, this place. And um, I think we all needed it, but I really needed it. Yes. <laughs> so It was you. more for me. I said this earlier. I, it yeah. was more for me than anything. <laughs> I, I felt like I needed a little a little settling. Yeah. Co settling with uh definitely with you too. It was great. So mm-hmm. so you. grateful for you. Glad to have you back. Yeah, appreciate you. Yeah, thanks for having me in your space on the pod. So yeah. last year, so wild. Yeah. It was exactly a year ago. <laughs> well, three hundred and sixty two days ago that we recorded our first podcast together. Mm-hmm. And in our post pod we had all these conversations and I took notes for, for round two. And it's wild that it's been a year ago, but um, we're excited to kind of launch off of where we left off a year ago. Well, getting know, right into it. Check in, check in where where you've been in the last year, how yeah. you've grown and and evolved, and you know, one thing's constant is that we're all changing, right? So yeah. See how we've changed and rearranged in the last year, but um, a theme that we had in our last conversation. Uh, that we wanted to explore more was about embodiment. Mm. And I think that's maybe the one of the greatest needs that society and civilization is, is facing these days is to remember to become embodied again. Uh, I think the rat race, the chaos, um, the division, a lot of, a lot of the anxiety and, and trauma and, and just unease that this world's felt in the past years I think all speaks to disembodiment so um I think let's let's get into it let's get into embodiment let's get into living embodied let's get into maybe discussing disembodiment so that we can um acknowledge and note where we are living those experiences so that we can check ourselves to to check in instead of checking out Mm. Um, so where should we start, you know, should we start with defining <laughs> embodiment? Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to, to define embodiment into words, but I guess, um, yes, we're trying to intellectualize. <laughs> we're going to get into this. We're trying to intellectualize <laughs> off the start. <laughs> Maybe that's where we start. Let's start there. Yeah. That might in, be the natural point. In te- <laughs> in te- uh, intellectualizing versus the body, how there's a separation between, intellectualizing ideas and experiencing them in our body. Yeah, I think um hmm could start in so many places. I think I'll start with like the term that we hear a lot, which is mind over matter. Um that's a term we a colloquial term we hear quite often. And um 
I find this term, um, you know, it can be motivating, it can be encouraging in many ways, but it also, for me, these days, has been pointing to our collective shaping as a society. Mm. Um, I think from an early age, we get um, shaped by, you know, authority figures, whoever it might be, um, to kind of disregard our feelings um, in order to uh, meet a certain moment to appease someone to show up in a way that you know authority figures want you to show up in and um, and I think what this leads to is kind of like a mind over body type dynamic and so in a lot of eastern spirituality mind body is one thing it's you know our our whole humanity is in the mind body and its interconnection and as soon as we get into mind over body, mind over matter, it starts to um, tease apart some of our humanity, some of the things that give us our wisdom, some of the things that give us our function, our thriving, our ability to, to love. Um, I think love is a pretty interesting one where it makes a lot of people uncomfortable to talk about. And I think a lot of that comes from... Uh, the over-intellectualizing of, you know, many human things and, and, and love. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think even just hearing that, that kind of like jump off point and explanation and it's something we've all heard. Maybe we've all said like <clears throat> mind over matter. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's often viewed as like a good thing. But even as you were saying it, the question that just like fired through my brain is like, who does that actually serve mm. when someone's inviting us to, you know, whatever it is, have this experience. Don't worry about what it is you're feeling. Like what or who is that serving? Yeah, I think it really, for me, it really depends on on the situation, the context. But a lot of times it's serving uh, kind of these concepts or ideas of who we want ourselves to be, right? And so uh, a lot of the way just I would approach self-improvement or physical fitness or all these things would be, you know, intellectualizing it at first, trying to learn about it, trying to feel into like, what does science say about it? What does, um, what are these articles saying about it? Uh, what do these athletes do as if they, they live the same life that I do? <laughs> and, uh, and, and intellectualizing like these check marks, these metrics, right? And then, kind of pushing my body to meet those metrics. And so I think one thing you uh, called out, Zach, last time um, in the pre-pod today was about uh, how I mentioned that self-discipline is a myth. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying like there's no point in, you know, striving to, to uh, grow or to become stronger or to run faster. Like that's not what I'm saying about self-discipline and being a myth. Um, but I think the ways that we approach it, if we follow that mind over matter type mentality, is to kind of like create this tyrannical oppression of our bodies by our minds. And so one thing I noticed when I was, I would be, you know, either at the gym and like I'm on the last rep and it's like not going up. I'm like feeling like, yeah, almost like a, like a general like commanding the body to yes. finish that rep to like push through all of the things and and not saying that you know pushing through isn't beneficial but 
can it be done in a way where I'm not separating mind and body mm. and instead really coming into a direct relationship of that experience in that moment and really come through it with the body and not almost like in spite of it. Yeah. 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 That's really good. I think too, I love that example, but it's like, comes back to motivation. Mm -hmm. Like, why are you doing it? Mm -hmm. And what happens if you do it versus what happens if you don't do it? So if it's like that extra set or rep or running speed or whatever it would be mm. that we push ourselves for. And we typically say mind over matter. Like you can do it, just focus mm -hmm. and push. Like, what is the goal of that? Mm -hmm. Is that because you are doing it to work well with and improve and make your body healthier and stronger? Or is it because you will, once you attain that thing or that rep or that whatever, then you'll be happy with your body. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Like, uh, I guess it's like a interconnectedness of mind and body with like a love of the body and like really bringing it on board with like our full humanity and not just kind of like separating out this thing that's like a vehicle for us. Right. You know? Because when we separate it, we create this hierarchy where the mind almost owns the body. Totally. And there's that, there is that separation versus that interconnectedness because we say things like, mind, body, soul, I'm interested in mind, body, soul. Mm -hmm. You know, we say it as if it's one thing mm -hmm. because it is one thing, mm -hmm. but then we we create that hierarchy. Like, as Dean was talking about, you know, I'm, I, I think sports is often an easy example, but <clears throat> it's like that, like you were saying, come on, one more rep or like run faster or you can do it. Like, you know, I, not, to, not to say that these aren't, valuable things in, in competition when we need them but for sure for sure um, time and place context yeah. there's that that thought that when your body wants to quit you're still have 90 percent left in the tank mm -hmm. and i think like dean's asking like who who is that serving is that serving you to achieve and push past your boundaries or mm -hmm. is it just like a disconnection of your mind and body mm. yeah totally one thing that i feel into with that example is like with with embodiment can i lean into it in a way where i'm not sacrificing anything and and not creating extra tension because like for example if i'm in time and place like if i'm in a competition let's say and i'm like i need that one more rep to to yeah. win you know i might i might resort to that in that moment but if it's done on a continual basis every time you exercise every time you deadlift that's what you do then it starts to create these repetitive repetitions and it creates, you know, tension, this energy in the body that is getting built up. Mm -hmm. And like, where does that energy go? Mm -hmm. If we're disembodied and we don't have practices to create, you know, to release tension, then all of a sudden all of that energy builds up. And where is it? Where is that showing up in your life? Like, right. where is that coming up? outside of the gym mm -hmm. for example mm -hmm. yeah i have like a silly story <laughs> i can share that i think like captures this because i lived it yeah and it was like pointless but whatever we were away with some friends this summer and the house we were staying at had a pool and so we were all of a sudden like well we should do like a breath holding competition <laughs> right <laughs> and so of course we get into it and it's fun right and yeah. the the nature of it is like pushing against what's natural mm. right because you're holding your breath and so your body literally is screaming at you like breathe and mm. you're 
trying to like use your mind to suppress what the body is telling you mm. ever increasingly like louder and louder and louder the longer you hold your breath. And I remember struggling like to get past a minute um, knowing that, you know, I was like, I can hold my breath longer than that. And then the thing that shifted for me was actually not trying to push against my body, yes. but like listening to it and working with it. And so I was taking these big, big inhales of breath and then trying to hold it underwater and just feeling so uncomfortable mm -hmm. with all of this air in my body. And then so I was like, I think I should just take a normal breath. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to yeah. take a normal breath and see what happens. And no joke, I just like breathed out all of the air and then just kind of breathed a few normal breaths and then was like, okay, I'm going to go. Started the clock, just like a normal amount of air and went underwater. I felt so comfortable and it was like two over two minutes I held my breath for. And it just felt, it, was, it wasn't easy, but there was ease. Yes. Totally. And it was like that shift of like, I have to fight and resist against my body's urge to just breathe. And when I didn't and moved into the place of like listening to what my body was saying, it like, made it it was a game changer yeah yeah and that's a really good example because it's so noticeable when you do it when you do it those two different ways right and it really illustrates what i'm trying to say because it's really like a subtle point because like it can really seem like uh, you know there's not much of a difference between the two approaches but that one is so specific and really illustrative for me because like you said when there's ease in the body and it's almost like you're coming from the body of like how how does what does the body need in this moment to do this and and listening to it instead of the mind going over with the concept of like i'm gonna intake the maximum amount of oxygen <laughs> yes. and then like hold, hold it, it in yeah. and create all of this like rigidity so it has nowhere to go right but all of that tension and energy that you're creating in that squeezing and that contraction takes away like actually it creates the need for your muscles to receive oxygen. And so all of a sudden your body's literally suffocating from the contraction of that holding. Yes. And all of a sudden, if you actually relax and listen to the body and ask the body, like how, how can we do this? Yeah. Then all of a sudden it becomes a much more easeful experience. And then it's almost like, play versus like force yes right it's kind yes. of like ooh, how far can we go mm -hmm. and there's like this ease to it and this like relaxation which then like creates the conditions for your body to use up as little oxygen in the muscles as possible right and creates the conditions for you to do a longer breath hold yeah, yeah. and the difference is subtle but it is like worlds apart Apart. Yeah. yeah it's almost like a surrender to trusting your body like um mm. we'll move past these physical examples but uh i got really into the grouse grind this summer and for those that don't know it's like a very steep climb up grouse mountain um are you international now is that what you're saying yeah yeah yeah, yeah. for our international <laughs> non-vancouver <laughs> listeners true. we've got a couple we got a couple shout out to <laughs> if our, yeah. our global listeners that's right <laughs> cosmic cosmic listeners here <laughs> um so sometimes I would really push it on the grind and I would like basically burn out by three quarters and then just like will myself through the last quarter. And then other times I'm like, I'm just going to relax and just follow how my body feels. And literally every time I'm within 30 seconds of, of mm. my finishing time is within 30 seconds. If I push it to like, I'm going to pass out to just like relaxing and going, I'm like, 30 seconds slower or faster. So it's mm -hmm. like if I just trust my body and relax, 
my body does the work, you know, like it just goes. Whereas if I'm like tight, like you were mentioning, pushing it, like breathing heavy, uh, mm-hmm. there's this like restriction that I'm already, I'm already separating the mind and the body. But where I ultimately want to go with this is, you know, we're, we're focusing on the physicality. I think that's an easy place to think about embodiment, like our bodies, physical running, lifting weights, that's using our body that's embodied. But how do we separate physicality from embodiment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I, um, I feel like the, like if you take, you know, athletes as an example, um, that would be what I consider physicality. And I'm not saying that no athlete is embodied. I just mean the, the specific form of like the mastery of the body to perform. It's like a mastery of the mechanics and it's, you know, at elite levels when you're watching pro athletes, it's like a mastery to microscopic levels. Like think about Steph Curry shooting a hundred three pointers in a row in practice. It's like microscopic mastery of mechanics of the body. Right. And the way I feel into embodiment is more so more so a, a sensitivity to our feeling, like our sense of feeling, our sense of sensing, like our senses, and really feeling into those as a two-way communication. And so when we're mind over body, mind over matter, and, you know, um, like, for example, I keep thinking about when I used to uh, push myself in, in athletic ways, uh, it would be very mind over body. Yes. Mm-hmm. And there was no hearing it. Like it, there was no space for me to hear like, Oh, actually, if you create ease in your body right now, you can hold your breath longer. Like that piece of information would not come through because it would be a one way street of communication. And so I think for me, like physicality is, you know, and I think, um, you know, Western yoga, for example, like because we're such a, a disembodied collective of people in, in the West, when yoga first came here, we took out the asana, the physical practice from the eight limbs and focused on that. But if you actually study yoga, that's there solely for preparation for sitting meditation. And so being able to tease that apart, we can see like, oh, like a lot of forms of yoga, and I see it changing a lot drastically in the last few years in Vancouver, but a lot of forms of yoga are very purely physical. It's like, especially when, you know, you're in a certain posture and the instructor instructor will be like telling you of like visual cues of like where your knee should be in relation to like your toes from your eyes, right? And that's a very physical way to go about it. And I've been practicing uh, yoga lately with some other teachers that lean further into embodiment, and it won't ever be a visual cue. It'll actually be something you feel like with your eyes closed. Mm-hmm. It'll be like, uh, I'm like the the person that can't think of an example when I have to think of an example. <laughs> but you know, let's say like you're in a certain pose and and you want your hips to be aligned, and so instead of uh, instead of just kind of like verbally saying, put your hip in, in line, it'll be like feel into your heel, into the balls of your feet, like where, where do you feel the weight distributed? How do you feel that in relation to these other body parts? And it'll be very sensorial, very felt, like you really have to close your eyes to really get to that level of sensitivity. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, like I don't actually have to 
force my body into any position mm. i can come up against a place where i'm like oh like i can't actually get into that angle with my knee and instead of in the past i would just be like okay like this is visually what's supposed to look like i'm just gonna shove my knee into place yes. and eventually my body will figure it out but actually you're just reinforcing i was reinforcing the mind over body and separating it even more right. and all of a sudden if i can just like move up to the point where my knee can go and then sit there and get so intimate with the sensations like in my conscious experience if i can get so intimate that it really feels almost as if it's like i'm no longer pointing my attention from my face or like behind my eyes to my knee it's like i'm aware of my knee as my knee and when it gets that intimate, then all of a sudden I just have to find a gentle outbreath and like move it into that direction. And the knee kind of just goes into place. And I didn't create any of this unnecessary strain or tension. And going back to what you were saying about how you let go of that, like the, all that contraction from the tension, that comes up a lot in sitting meditation and especially with people who are incredibly motivated to become, you know, mindful or a good meditator or mm. um, whatever it might be. And, and I'm guilty of this, this first person experience. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so when I first started doing it, there'd be a lot of striving. There'd be a lot of like disciplining, mm. of mm -hmm. like trying to get it right. And after a while, when you get sensitive enough, you start to notice you're creating all of this excess tension contraction all of this excess energy that's pulling you away from the goal mm -hmm. and it's this like again i come back to mind over matter it's like this insistence that our minds need to be the, the they're the arbiter of our experience and the surrender word you used i love because once you surrender that conscious ego and just feel what the body feels as the body that's where i feel things start to change start to harmonize start to align yeah yeah it's it's amazing firsthand experience as well <laughs> it's amazing how attached we can become to non-attachment right? like, <laughs> like, oh yeah damn it i'm gonna be the least attached yeah me. i'm not attached so to anything right? so, yeah, so i'm not attached to this conversation it is you know and we joke about that and, and and knowing like that is part of the journey is to oh, moving sure. towards yeah. that but maybe you know you can speak to this too because i think you know we're all people who are would fall into that category of like we're motivated we're driven we're you know we like to have goals and achieve and accomplish things as do most people but how do you balance like that drivenness which is often seen as like a that's a real that's a core good quality mm -hmm. and maybe we could dive into that too but how do we balance like being driven being motivated someone who wants to you know ingest be the best meditator there is mm. with the the benefit of of that that idea of discipline of being there committing to a practice sitting through it like at what point do you think it tips into something that's like helpful for us to that drivenness being actually part of like what's in our way yeah I think for me it's always where is it coming from and i think we are all as human beings naturally designed uh, to create 
to thrive, to grow. And so if those things aren't happening, if you don't feel drive, if you don't feel motivation, there's something, you know, again, this is the limitations of language and words. Um, there's a block. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, listeners might receive that in multiple different ways of what I mean by that. But in some way, there's something covering, blocking in the way of your natural ability to be a driven creator. And I think for me, before I started to get into uh, mindfulness and my healing journey, it was always about placing that discipline, that motivation on top of me. Mm. And instead, I wasn't asking the right questions of what is actually the thing in the way of my natural desire to do whatever it is that I want to be motivated to do. Mm -hmm. And so I think one, one aspect for me that I've learned with myself is that I just have to really learn how to receive the information my body is telling me because my body is actually telling me at all times what it's what it needs what it's not getting what and and you know i think the longer i spend uh, practicing embodiment there's more discernment coming online because at first it's really hard to tease apart like is that a craving or is that something my body actually needs to to thrive and so you start to become you know as hiro demichelis always says the scientist of the laboratory of your of your experience mm. and you start to to play with things to see what works to see what doesn't but at the end of the day for me it's find that natural alignment and if you need constant if i need constant motivation to do something it might not be aligned with me spiritually or it might be something or i have to figure out what's in the way what's blocking that that flow mm. Yeah. Can we talk about those blockages for a minute? Because I think we're embodied whether we're conscious or unconscious. And I think when we are unconscious or we're not bringing intention to it, that's where we can embody anger or rage or um, trauma or a story that doesn't serve where we're wanting to get from A to B or we're projecting this journey we want to be on but we're still attached we're still embodying a story that's not allowing us to to live in that state so if we're embodying a story that we want to to let go of that's blocking us if we are embodying rage or anger or you know generational intergenerational trauma like how do we move through these things because mm -hmm. i know something you talk about is that we're all in flux everything's always changing and in mm -hmm. motion so how do we move through these these stories these experiences these trauma these traumas to to get to a place of embodying love and abundance and and you know sharing that with ourselves and others yeah thank you for that question i think um I th one thing I want to speak into is that emotions are are embodied, our our natural way of of being, of feeling. It's it's very human, and mm -hmm. I think the whole point of embodiment is to return to our full humanity, where we don't bypass or or 
um, negate any aspect of ourselves. And so anger and rage, I think, are are definitely part of it, but it's part of our our humanity. But it's, I think, what maybe you're uh, trying to touch into is like, when does it become dysfunctional? Yes. Or when is it appropriate? It's a hard question to Mm -hmm. answer, but Mm -hmm. I feel like... um, you know, it depends on the culture. It depends on the norms, on what's accepted. Um, and so, you know, I would love to see our culture be able to allow for all beings to process our, our anger, our rage, especially our grief, mm-hmm. like our, our culture. And I say our, like I, I really grew up in this culture, right? And, and was shaped by it. And one thing I notice about our collective culture is that there's a real aversion to really challenging emotions like mm-hmm. anger and grief. And so then it, at a young age, we get told like, that that's not acceptable. Right. And then all of a sudden we repress it, we hide it. It becomes like part of our shadow self that we repress. And all of a sudden it starts to, you know, stay there. And I think that's where embodiment comes in is if we are disembodied, we're able to move through life without ever having to, without the opportunity to know how to let that out or that it's even there in the first place. And so one thing you asked in the pre-pod was like how my last year has been. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's been really challenging because I've met my anger that I've repressed for so many years and, and came up face to face with it. And up until that point, I'm not going to lie. There were moments where I'm like, wow, like this is, easeful like i am fluent in in spiritual growth like anything that comes up i'm like able to process it at will and like it was coming so easy and i and all of a sudden it the anger came up the anger arose in naturally and it you know it kicked my ass Mm. (laughs) let's talk about it let's talk about it yeah i feel like um you know collectively there's a lot of anger in the world so i think people will connect with this and i think when you don't allow yourself to acknowledge it and experience that feeling that's where um violence can show up um that's that's where you know health and issues with our health can show up because they're going to manifest in some way um so let's let's talk about what happens when we are embodying anger or emotions like that yeah i feel like i feel like what happens when we repress it specifically like especially with things like anger when you repress it there's like and and i'm not getting into like the exact explanation of what's happening so don't take this as like a scientific dissertation (laughs) but there's a lot of like pent-up energy let's say tension Uh, so you might be carrying chronic tension you might be carrying all of this unease with you throughout the day and not being able to let that go and so if we live in a disembodied culture and that's our shaping and we don't have the practices of movement of breath of whatever it might be of of contemplation to be able to meet those things as they are and to really meet with the reality of how it's coming up in our bodies then that's going to show up in some way and it's i I think that's different for for every person every genetic bundle every you know uh, depending on where they grew up what what kind of um, environments they were in I think it, it's so different that I can't speak with any specificity but I, I don't know we're all kind of in the millennial age group and I know countless people friends including myself for m- many many years 
where we have these like small ailments, these small like small things that aren't right. We know they're not right. Like maybe it's like a little skin rash. Maybe it's like, oh, all of a sudden I can't digest wheat. <laughs> like yeah. I ate wheat my whole life and now I just can't digest it. Like what's going on? Uh, and yeah. yeah, and like all of these small things that like no doctor will solve for you. Like I've never heard of a friend going with these types of symptoms unless it's like a, you know, a big disease, right? But no one's going with these like smaller symptoms and being like, oh yeah, like here's a cure. I mean, I'm going to say that and you're going to have tons of listeners being like, no, 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 my doctor did fix it. <laughs> <laughs> but for me and, and a lot of people in my, in my groups, um, like they're just kind of like, you know, we don't really know why that's happening. We don't have a solution for you. Like, you know, get, get good sleep, eat your veggies. Like that's kind of what we get told. And I, I have this working hypothesis that, and I, and I think I've heard it from, uh, a teacher of mine um and it's that it's like all of these things is your body protesting this disconnection this inability for us to hear it out for us to just be there and to witness and to like receive and mm -hmm. then to do something about it mm -hmm. to be in relationship with your body yeah yeah i think yeah that's good i mean oftentimes too the cure not to belittle the actual cures that exist out there, right? To mm -hmm. thanks to science and modern medicine, but even from my own experience and and with our kids and stuff, it's like, hey, what is this? All of a sudden, there's this like rash or eczema or whatever it is, mm -hmm. and oftentimes it's like, oh, here, put this, use this cream, mm -hmm. this topical, and it will address the symptom. The symptom, yeah. And so the symptom might go away, mm -hmm. which is great because we don't want to be living with symptoms. But the symptoms are often the the kind of warning side. That's the alert being mm -hmm. like, there's something else. There's something else going on, right? I yeah. mean, that's not any revelation to anyone. Mm -hmm. But when we mask <laughs> the symptom, uh -huh. we can feel like, oh, the issue is solved. Uh -huh. But actually, not at all. No, and so now we're going on with this chronic condition, whatever it might be, whether it's mm -hmm. not, un whatever is unresolved or unaddressed within us, the symptom may not be bothering us anymore. So we continually... Uh, are enabled mm. to be less mindful of it, mm -hmm. to pay less attention to it, which yeah. is the opposite of what we need to be doing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I have a lot of love for Western science and medicine. I studied uh, sciences at UBC. I studied psychology at UBC, and um, and but one thing that I've come to terms with recently is like, where did our Western medical um, institution come from? And it really came from wartime like triage, right? Like to fix someone up so that they can get back into battle. And I don't think it's really changed much from that. Like you said, like most of our Western science is impeccable, so good at treating conditions, or sorry, treating symptoms. Yeah. And really allowing us to get back into the battlefield, which for most of us is like work, mm -hmm. <laughs> our workplace, yes, right? Get yeah. back to work. Yeah. And so there's Western, Western medicine, I feel like, doesn't really address the the root cause of these things and also like western science again i have a lot of love for western science um and western science is very isolationist in the way it views things in the way that it does experiments it isolates a variable and then sees what what correlates with different changes in it etc and so if we're talking about mind-body as an interconnected, holistic oneness, then how could something isolationist 
figure out how to create a harmony within that mm-hmm. interconnected system. And so for me, like, I, like I still go to my Western doctor. Don't, don't, don't throw yeah. the baby out with the bathwater. Of course, of course, yes. And I'm starting to welcome a lot more Eastern approaches to medicine in this like mutually beneficial hybrid of like Western and Eastern. Yeah. And and I th- think they both have their advantages and disadvantages. But together, I think they're they're really powerful. And I think one thing that Eastern medicine has an advantage in is to really touch into the interconnectedness of our being and how to work with that. I think a lot of Western science, um, especially when I was on, in university, um, it really disregarded Eastern science as pseudoscience, as all these things. And the more time goes on, like since I graduated, so much Eastern studies of our bodies, of our well-being, of our thriving are being validated by Western science. Mm-hmm. For example, meditation and mindfulness, like we take that almost for granted now that it's good for us. But yeah. 20 years ago, Western science did not have that view of, of mindfulness and meditation. Yeah. Think about our gut health. Our gut health we know as one of the most important aspects of our human well-being. And 20 years ago, you would be laughed at scientists who studied gut health and were saying the things that we now believe were laughed at, were mm-hmm. ridiculed. And so I feel like, especially in the last 20 years, there's been a lot of evolution of the ways we look at psychology of emotions, of trauma. And like, there's a lot of separation out there. And I think that's the that's the kind of the the key central theme is that our beings are interconnected and how do we meet that? Like how do we create harmony and alignment with all of the complexity of how we are and and how we're being? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's such an important reminder. And like even, even our environment, like we often think of the things within us, but even our environment obviously like directly influences what's going on within our bodies. Mm -hmm. So if we are chronically stressed or fatigued, like we know empirically that those things are going to have a negative effect on ourselves. So if we find ourselves in stressful jobs or our, our levels of anxiety are ramped up for any number of reasons and we're not working to mitigate that, you know, what was it Lululemon with their, with their reusable shopper bags, you know, that we all carried around as lunch bags or whatever, or beach bags where it's like stress is the leading cause of all illness or whatever. Right. And it's just maybe good marketing for people who are, you know, get out there and take care of your body. But at the same time, it's true. It's fundamentally true that these stressors in our lives are making us sick. Mm-hmm. And if we're looking for, for solutions to symptoms, Western medicine is, there's no better place to turn. But if we want to go beyond that, mm-hmm. we might need some practices that at once were, were deemed by, you know, like a colonial establishment as like less than ideal or mm-hmm. less than important. And now, thank goodness, we're starting to recognize the wisdom that has existed for thousands of years and helped millions and millions of people. Mm-hmm. We're validating that. And even I even feel uncomfortable saying like Western science, and I've said it myself, but like Western science validates this. It's like this didn't need it to be validated. <laughs> yeah. But in some ways, like when and we can. It did. <laughs> and, and, and it did. That's the sad reality. Yeah. It's like now that we can put electrodes on someone's head who is meditating. <laughs> And see, oh yeah. my God, it actually does something. Now we're like, oh yeah, 
yeah, now, oh, of course, yes, <laughs> meditation, right? Rather than just trusting the monks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you know, I want to get into, uh, Dean just kind of segued into this. I want to get into colonial disembodiment. But before we go there, I've got a few. <laughs> just, just that. Just that. <laughs> I'm just going to put a pin there so that we circle back. <laughs> that little topic. Um, um, you touched on a bunch of things that brought up some questions for me. Um, treating the, the symptom versus the root cause. Mm. We're, we were talking about urgency um, and our embodied experience of, of urgency, how it shows up of fight or flight. So mm. I think we can, we can go into that idea of treating the symptom and kind of zoom out. If we unpack that, you know, it goes deep. And instead of putting that ointment on, maybe there's a food sensitivity. Maybe that food sensitivity goes back to um, how we're growing our produce, how we treat the soil, what, you know, <laughs> it goes, there's a lot of unpacking to do. Yep. Right? Uh, and I think when we're treated with urgency, when we're treating with these issues, we often do get into this, this fight or flight, like this, this need to either, um, you know, run away from it and just ignore this issue or to fight it or, to freeze and just not do anything. So can you talk about urgency and how it relates to embodiment? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, we've kind of developed a culture of urgency, right? Um, I feel like capitalism, that's one of the biggest um, strains that it puts on, on folks is that there's more and more urgency deadlines, um, you know, all of that thing all of those things. And I think that leads to a lack of a sense of spaciousness. And I think when you have a sense of spaciousness, it's easier to not react. It's easier to respond, to take your time and and not react out of, you know, the shaping that you've received that you had no agency in choosing. Like Mm -hmm. we didn't choose our parents, where we grew up, who our teachers were, who our authority figures were. It kind of, you know, just happened. And, and so with all of those shapings that re- we've received, if we have a sense of urgency, we're always just reacting out of the things we know, the ways that we've always done things. There's no room for curiosity or um, allowing new ways, new, new potentials to emerge. You're just kind of just trying to survive. You're just trying to make it to the next day. And, and, and yeah, I think capitalism kind of depends on that on that urgency because I think what happened when when COVID happened and all of a sudden there was no urgency we saw a lot of things happen I mean it happened in all the ways like some people it was a really challenging time and like nothing nothing beneficial might have come from it but for a lot of folks that I spoke to like it all of a sudden got their priorities in order it got them to see the bigger picture it got them to see new ways of doing things it got them to question why we're doing the things we're doing in the first place for the first time. And I think that collective energy has created a lot of, a lot of energy all the ways. And I think some of the energy, uh, especially the ones that kind of look at traditions and look at, you know, our shapings and begin to question that, um, our social structures, our social constructs, um, those can be really liberating for folks to not feel like they have to do 
the things that they've always done mm-hmm. for no reason that's aware that, that they're aware of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know you've used a couple times this word, and I really, really like it. This idea of spaciousness, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's one of the maybe, uh, and again, n- not true for all of us, but for many of us, one of the gifts of the wild time of COVID that we lived through was this natural gift of space. Mm-hmm we had all of a sudden more margin in our lives because there wasn't the same demands of get to the office and do this and that, we just, cause we simply couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but how now as the world is returned and returning <laughs> to maybe what it once was before or emerging into some sort of new version. But in my experience now I'm seeing a lot of things kind of go back and there's a lot of language of like, oh, we can, we'll never go back. It won't be the same. We have to like find a new normal. Um, but we're humans. We're routine. Yeah. We like the things. We knew how things worked. And as we can move back, you know, we move back. And perhaps we're losing that gift of space. But mm. what could we do in our lives? Or, or what would you say is a good way for people to kind of cultivate mm. that spaciousness aside from some global crisis <laughs> how do we do it in our day-to-day yeah, lives the easier yeah. way yeah i think uh, going back to self-discipline as a myth instead of like forcing that inquiry mm-hmm. let's think about like what are the conditions that allow you specifically right to feel spaciousness mm. and like really take some time and some quiet to like feel that yeah so you remember like what it feels like in your body to feel spacious and like what are the conditions for your body to naturally feel that on its own so when you close your eyes and think of spaciousness because i'm (laughs) i'm just imagining this now it's like for me there's nothing in my calendar it's a big breath it's a cup of tea in the morning to allow myself to sit and filter things but uh it's that pause in between action and inaction. You know, mm-hmm. what, what does what does spaciousness feel like when we when we say that word? What does it feel like for you if you close your eyes and just imagine spaciousness? Yeah, I think um one thing I'll say is that embodiment, a lot of it is to really feel it and not feel like think about the concept. And so right mm-hmm. now if I'm thinking about spaciousness, like it's textures it's like Mm -hmm. it's a it's a felt sensory experience of that right and so you can't see me because this isn't visually recorded but i'm closing my eyes and feeling into my body yeah when i feel spacious i feel like um kind of like this like wavy like a like a groovy waviness and like levity i sense into like like velvet I feel into like tenderness, softness, warmth. Oof, I could stay there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, it's mm-hmm. like it's it's textures. It's and and again, like the words that I just said to describe that was a necessity just to communicate. Mm-hmm. But those words don't represent my experience. It's still like, sure. That's not my experience. Like the experience is the experience itself. And the moment I intellectualize it or verbalize it, mm. it is no longer that thing. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, one thing in Zen Buddhism is to um, see something uh, underneath the concepts, the language. 
And so, for example, if I'm in like Pacific Spirit Park, right, and I'm looking into the forest, like if I'm there and I look in, I'm like, I see forest, I see trees, like all these words, all these concepts. And these concepts kind of like take the shape in our experience of these things. They, they're like these mental representations, almost like a filter of experience. And so I'm not actually seeing this tree in like the moment to moment flow, the flux of like direct experience, but rather I'm like working with my mental model of the tree and everything I know about it. And so there's like this really thin veil and, and you know, it's almost uh, unnoticeable if, if direct experience isn't a practice. And if I can just keep looking at it with an openness and to get underneath the concept of a tree, to just see this thing, this shape in front of me, then all of a sudden it's like you're seeing it in a different way. Again, mm -hmm. words, the limitations of language, it's so hard to convey this. But when, when we work with concepts solely, it keeps us stuck in the past because these concepts were formed in the past. In this moment, you're seeing, if you're seeing reality as it is, you're seeing the moment to moment changes. But if you're just seeing a tree, this tree is the same tree that was there a year ago, 10 years ago. And you're just meeting this tree of the past over and over, this concept in your mind. And so uh, an interesting practice is how do you get underneath concept and language so that you can really see things as they are and that, you know, moment to moment, it's not the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's something brand new. Mm -hmm. And to go back to urgency, that urgency of that we feel doesn't allow us to spend that time to actually receive the world in that way because we have too much shit to do. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm going to go on this jog or this walk in Pacific Spirit Park and then I got to go back. Yeah. And, but like, you know, let's say it was the beginning of the pandemic and you're in the forest and you have nothing to do that day. And you just sat there and you just stared at this tree. And I just feel like that experience of really seeing things in the moment to moment, direct experience of it can allow things to emerge curiosity emergent strategy, seeing things in flux, seeing things that nothing is the same, which frees us up from just living in the past of these concepts that were built in the past and us just doing the same things because we've always done it that way. Right. We've always done it that way. Right. Can you talk about cultivating that mindset of seeing something for the first time every time, even if we're experiencing that tree and we see it as the same tree? How do we have this mindset of seeing things for the first time every time? Oh, I mean, it's, it's very challenging because mm. it's, uh, I mean, I can only speak for my first person experience, but my whole life I spent moving through the world with concepts and like just working with concepts and not actually seeing like the direct experience of it in any given moment. And in that, in like when there's that filter of concept, I'm not able to shift my, like, I can't shift to see it the other way because that, that way is the only way I know. It's rigid. And so I would say that it's, it's a practice. It's something that you have to practice quite a bit. And, um, and again, when I say that, some, like, 
me, if I heard that when I first started meditating, I'd be like, oh, and I would strive more. I'd be like, oh, yeah. I'm really going to see it. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. I really want to see it. <laughs> and I would say that the less, like, like the breath hold, like when you fully let go and surrender mm-hmm. and like surrender the, the mind to the body and you know it's not gonna be a forever thing so like don't get scared like you'll never get your mind back but like to really have that like (coughs) you know what some people might call ego death but just letting go and surrendering that conscious knowing the conscious awareness to just receive openly and so you know if someone's looking for a very like step-by-step process of how to do this I don't really have one I I guess I could share what practices I've done um, there's many, you know, non-dual awareness is kind of the term that comes up. And so there's many practices that work with non-dual awareness uh, to be able to let go of that, like, um, rigidity with concepts. And the, the one um, practice that, I, that really benefited me in this specific way was um, the Headless Way. And I think the website is just headless.org. And like, don't expect anything like flashy or like super modern, but it's um, essentially this practice uh, designed for for Western ways of perceiving, Western ways of um, viewing experience, and kind of like these exercises that begin to perhaps show you a different way of perceiving the world. Mm. One thing I'll say is that a lot of people who are visual artists, like drawing especially, people who draw things that they see in the world, they do this. Like this is something they kind of have to learn because when you first start drawing a face, I'm going to draw a nose and I'm just really replicating my conceptual understanding of a nose. But when a drawer, and and again, I'm saying this in absolute terms, but I'm sure there are many ways to draw people's faces, but when when certain people draw faces, they're not thinking about your nose. They're thinking about the shape, the angle, the textures. It's decontextualized from the concept and instead just seeing things for as it is. And so if I'm like, let's say I'm cuddling with, uh, with my partner, her nose, when it's you know up against my face, kind of looks like a mountain. It's like taking out my whole visual... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, visual area and it it's gigantic and in that moment let's say like in that moment that was the first moment I existed and that's the first thing I saw I would just see that I wouldn't see nose I would just see like this <laughs> she doesn't have a big nose by the way <laughs> but I would just see this like giant shape yeah right? it's decontextualized I'm just seeing it as it is and in that similar way, it's a shift in perspective. It's not saying that the nose isn't there or anything like that. It's just saying that our experience, typically when we're shaped in the West, is to deal with the concept and not what you're actually seeing moment to moment. Mm. It's really convoluted. And like the, again, the words don't do it justice. No, I enjoyed that. Like I went yeah. to Emily Carr okay. uh, and you know studied painting and drawing and all these things and I think I've lost that side of myself because I remember doing you know life drawing and I would just do that I would just focus on like the curvature of a shoulder Mm -hmm. for like an hour and that's all I would see is this shoulder I wouldn't see the whole body and the the more you stared at the shoulder it became less 
shoulder, right? Yes. Like less concept of a shoulder. Yes. And it just became like, and same thing when you like repeat a word out loud 20 times, yes. it starts to just like dissolve in meaning. Yes. And yeah. like, it just sounds like sounds all of a sudden. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like that is what I'm like kind of referencing. Yeah. You like, start to see shapes and yeah. contours mm-hmm. and light and, mm-hmm. um, you know, rigidity or softness. and Exactly. Characteristics. Um, characteristics. Yeah. And all of a sudden, if you're attuned to more sensitive, subtle ways of seeing the world, then there's so much more room for yes. new ways of mm-hmm. imagining things, new ways of things being. And if we're just always stuck on the concept of what we know this thing to be, then there's no room for that thing to be anything else. And, you know, in the case of like, you know, a lot of, in a lot of cases, that's kind of like a silly thing to say, like, you know, a cup's a cup, it's still a vessel, but you know, let's say, let's say society falls apart and we have no more technology. The vessel can be so many more things than just what we perceive a cup to be conceptually. And in different contexts, different times when, you know, the conditions, when our environment isn't what we know to be collectively, like we all agree that we live in 2022. We all agree that we're in a living room right now. I mean, a, a studio, a yeah, <laughs> <totally>. <laughs> professional studio, yes. <laughs> super but, professional video coming soon. That's right. But in different times and different eras and different contexts, all yes. of a sudden things don't carry the same conceptual meaning. And so I think, you know, leaning into Adrian Marie Brown's emergent strategy, leaning into our embodiment creates the conditions for us to be more emergent with our understanding our perceptions and not be fixated on the past Mm. speaking on that interconnectedness that we were touching on with with body and and mind and we were talking about the trees in the forest and Mm. i was just thinking about your analogy there withdrawing and if you looked at the tree with that same lens Mm. you would see it with those new eyes, you'd see it differently. You'd notice something new mm-hmm. every time you saw that tree. But if we zoom out further, we're talking about, okay, interconnectedness of mind and body and soul. But what if we zoom out embodiment to our relationship to earth and surrounding and forest and animals and agriculture and like can embodied be a holistic experience that is interconnected to this, this earth experience that we're having? Yeah, for sure. I I feel that a lot. I think, um, you know, if you've ever done psychedelics and gone into nature, you know, first person experience, like you're seeing things in a different way. You feel Mm. the nature like it's not separate from you. I mean, it's not like you are the forest floor although you know i've had experiences where you kind of become the forest floor and you're like whoa i'm the forest right now (laughs) um but i think um i think psychedelics if you go into the science it turns off your default mode network and that's kind of the orchestrator conductor of your brain and um it's kind of associated with your ego and so as soon as that turns off then all of a sudden all these different ways of being and I would argue um, a lot of them are, are deeply human. Uh, all of them are deeply human? I don't know. <laughs> but these like human ways of sensing come online. 
and they're no longer held down by the mind like that you can't show up right now because every time you show up I stare at this tree for 10 minutes and we don't get anything done <laughs> but yeah and so like disembodiment can not only bring us in connection to our full humanity but our full humanity is so interconnected with this earth like this earth is where we come from and where we go back to and so I think our bodies are really and maybe there's a there's a culture out there where they're like all body and zero mind and maybe they're also like not there but like when the when there is a mind body oneness a balance all of a sudden you become so sensitive to to everything you can feel things a lot more you become a lot more intuitive and you can feel into nature and and i think you can really feel into um the crisis we're at right now with mm. with where climate change is climate crisis is it's really challenging and i think our disembodiment fuels that like it doesn't we have no way of gauging a sensitivity to this earth body this earth that is so core to every every aspect of humanness of humanity yeah 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 not only are we increasingly disembodied but we're increasingly like disconnected or disembodied from the earth itself we mm -hmm. live in cities we live in oh yeah so many of us are like in, in urban environments mm -hmm. where nature is controlled right it's in the planter box it's mm -hmm. in the park yeah. or wherever it is it's there and it's present and it's beautiful but it's not wild it's not how it is for really still the majority of the earth right we've urbanized a lot of it but the majority of it is still wild but we don't get out in those spaces mm -hmm. we're not connected to that so just as we are disembodied in our own bodies it's like that larger body that we are connected to which is this planet mm. we're we're not even connected there yeah so it like doubles down on what that does for us for sure or what it's not doing for us for sure yeah and, and i come back to mind over matter mm. nature is matter right and so it's this like oppressive not only a separation but an oppression of it's like you know if you look at um certain religious framings there's a lot of talk about dominion over the land yeah. over animals this domination this tyranny essentially mm. and you know i think that's interconnected with um our disembodiment and i think it also speaks to the level in which we place our minds <laughs> literally over over everything to the point where we can't even be sensitized to what's happening to our own planet to each other let's go let's get into this juno because i think this is on the theme <laughs> of colonial disembodiment and sovereignty and this idea of dominion over nature and body mm -hmm. like uh, we were talking about this earlier like we've become so disembodied that there's shame and there's guilt around our own bodies, you know, so much. Yeah. There's, there's, we see our bodies as, as sin, you know, um, saying, speaking in generalities and, and, and collectively here, but, um, we've been told, you know, not to experience the pleasures of the body or to feel shame if we're too thin or too fat or too large or too small or, not how, you know, the magazines tell us to be. Um, but we've never, you know, judged a tree for being too big or too small. You <laughs> I'm know, sure like, someone has. But. I'm sure someone has. <laughs> like, 
more water, more fertilizer, <laughs> trying to have dominion over that tree. Yeah, exactly. Loggers. Not not big enough yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bigger before we can cut it down. And I think that that disembodiment, uh, that dominion, like it gets back to thinking about sovereignty and and our sovereignty over our bodies and our food systems. How we can colonialism's disconnected us from from that. You know, the Western mm-hmm. colonial powers have have disconnected connection to to our our food systems to our traditions to to so much can we kind of get into the disembodiment of colonialism yeah and i think it's important to to understand why we're disembodied and that there should be no judgment on someone who's disembodied because Mm -hmm. it was such a you know um impactful shaping that was in my view uh intentional like it was very intentional and if you think back historically um colonialism had a a deep connection to uh, certain religious um shapings and if you look at their teachings and like what was in law back then you know looking at different eras there were certain eras where it was illegal to dance like you were not legally allowed to dance and there were, you know, uh, times, well, there's a lot of genocide, obviously, and a lot of genocide specifically on, on cultures that emphasized movement, dance, song, things that get our circulation, our breath flowing, things that create, that don't create um, uh, a lot of, like, the tension that arises from not moving our bodies. Um, if you think about, you know, even a hundred years ago, it'd be really odd for someone to go on a jog even like, and you can think of all these countless, um, ways in which the authority figures wanted people to not be able to be in their bodies and a really forceful way of disembodiment. And even, you know, certain, um, certain passages and certain books talk about, uh, the body uh, merely as a vehicle, like completely devaluing it as if it's something that is like in spite of our existence and not actually like core to our very humanity, our very human existence and mm-hmm. our ways of being, our ways of thriving. And so, yeah, it's curious to see like what does a disem- what does disembodiment allow for? Like who does that benefit? And really, if you're disembodied, it allows for a lot of control. Like you have no, not only do you have no way of actually moving through and processing a lot of human emotions, which are, I I start to see emotions as really our bodies calling for our undivided attention. Like when you feel whatever emotion it is. In psychology, it's told that like if you're able to give it your undivided attention, that's how it processes, it metabolizes, it moves through your body, it doesn't get stuck. But if we're shaped to be averse to discomfort in our bodies and we view our bodies as this vehicle that is just you know, a necessary evil and our minds are more important than the body, then all of a sudden we start to view you know, discomfort as an inconvenience, like, and then you start to find ways to distract yourself from this inconvenience. And I think that's what one thing, one mechanism that capitalism really 
depends on um, and different other forms of oppression really depend on is your inability to process things so that you constantly need the next thing, the next distraction, the next word from the authority figure at hand, whatever, whatever era we're talking about, right? Like of oppression and control and, and, and yeah, that's another key point is that oppression mm-hmm. existed before colonialism. So it's not just, mm-hmm. it's just that we're directly impacted by yes. colonialism, but through our ability to become reconnected to our bodies, to become embodied, all of a sudden we can tone the nervous system to start to meet those discomforts, to not get into an activated nervous system of fight, flight, or freeze. And all of a sudden you have the ability to really give it that attention. And earlier when I was referencing, like I felt like I could move through anything. It was like anything that came up, any emotional discomfort, any trauma, like I could really give it my undivided attention and it would completely process in that moment. And maybe not all the time, but for the most part. And when I hit anger, it was like, oh shit, like this one's so much that I cannot give it my undivided attention right now. Mm-hmm. My nervous system isn't, and, and this didn't go through my head, it's only in hindsight that I can see it, but it's like, oh, my nervous system wasn't toned enough to be able to handle that specific discomfort. It froze me. It would either put me into fight or freeze. Those were the two for anger with me. Those were the two gateways, and it was like, it was unreal. But through this like re this practice of coming back into the body over and over again, all of a sudden the nervous system grows, right? Um, and as your nervous system grows to be able to handle more and more discomfort, you're able to process your emotions better. Mm-hmm. You become more emotionally regulated, more emotionally intelligent. And I think really if we're thinking about how do we become more resilient people, and be able to handle and withstand a lot of whatever it is. I truly think the only sustainable, harmonious way for us to do that is through embodiment, through willful direction of our attention awareness to stay with the discomfort Hmm. and be okay with it and not let it push us to distract, to go back onto an infinite scroll. Yeah, yeah. To turn on Netflix, whatever it might be for you, right? And again, window of tolerance is key here. If you keep just getting activated, there's no, that's not helping. And so, you know, sometimes turning on Netflix or going on social media might be really useful, really helpful. But it's that, like, for me, it's the willingness to truly come face to face with what's coming up in your body with openness with almost like this welcoming attitude and to sit with it Mm. like make a cup of tea for it hang out (laughs) see what happens see what you find out about yourself Mm, i love that yeah make a cup of tea with your anger with your feelings it really is like liberation though Mm. Because without embodiment, we're, and just kind of connecting that as you were speaking, like, 
we often look at uh, the negative influences, the impacts of colonialism, mm. and rightfully so. Rightfully so. We focus on the people who are the supreme kind of victims, the people who experience the most injustice from oh, that system. Yeah. And that's like, pick your country, find mm. find the group that, you know, were living there before. And then people came in and colonized for us in Canada. Obviously, it's our indigenous people. But the impacts and effects of colonialism, colonialism are on all of us, all of regardless us. of from where or from whom we descend. Mm -hmm. And to practice that embodiment uh, invites us into spaces of liberation where we are freed from that oppression, right? And and specifically to the shaping that we did not choose. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, Yuval Noah Harari's Sapiens is a book that's gone around and a lot of people have read and you start to like, oh, like everything's a social construct. <laughs> and he's a Vipassana Buddhist, by the way. And right. so like he like that's I mean, I won't I won't speak for him, although I think I heard in a podcast um, that uh, his Buddhist uh, practice is kind of what shaped that book um, the way it did. And you know, that way of seeing through the concept, the construct, and seeing things as they are, it's so liberating. And then you're able to free yourself from the grip of your shaping, right? And, and again, if we didn't pick our shaping, then I feel like that, that point gives us so much room to forgive people, <laughs> to forgive anyone. Like they didn't pick that shaping right. that's making them act in those ways. And if they're acting disembodied out of urgency, they're really just acting out of the instructions set out by whoever sets the culture, right? And, and so the ability, I think, to um, meet ourselves in our bodies to see what's there, to be, as my teacher says, quiet enough to hear yourself and still enough to feel yourself when you're there then the emergence of liberation is there mm. as well because mm -hmm. you can you can meet it all and you can work with it mm. that's so good so important that's and that's the I think when it comes back to like that idea of practice is like we said, you know, we're driven. What what are the outcomes we're attached to in these things? But it's really simply like a, a removing, a removing of those layers to come back to ourselves, mm. who we truly are, like before we were shaped by these things we didn't necessarily choose, by people who helped shape us by things that they didn't necessarily choose. And yeah, yeah, when we live into that moment of freedom, like, that even to me feels in my body like spaciousness mm. yeah for sure mm. yeah i think a mindfulness journey a lot of people say this and i'm so so agree that it's unlearning rather than learning anything um i can't remember who said it now but someone talked about like how you know we all have this fundamental nakedness right and when we go out in public we put on these clothes so that we're not naked but it's not like underneath the clothes we're no longer have no nakedness. Like we're still naked. We're just <laughs> underneath these clothes, right? And so our shaping and things that come up, you know, when you're when you're meditating, for example, like all of those things are just like 
things layered on top of your natural way of being. And so with mindfulness, you're not trying to learn like the skill. <laughs> and I think that's where the, the striving comes unnecessarily, right? Like you're trying to like learn a skill like you learned every other skill by striving. And all of a sudden it's actually just being open enough to notice what's naturally there in each moment. And, you know, over, if you do this over the course of, you know, uh, a period of time, then things start to unfold. And I think that's a key word for me in a healing journey is an unfolding, not of, not only of your, your practice, but of your body, of your mind, the layers of, you know, shaping the ways of the ways that you don't allow yourself to be and yeah i think when you start to release that that's liberation i love this i love this i love you juno <laughs> i just want to sit and, and listen and learn but i feel like i feel like it's really important you know like we we have these conversations because they're fun and you know insightful and enlightening but like something like this i think is actually you know, I hope that people listening to this always get something out of the episodes, but this is like literally without being like overdramatic, a practice like this or, or an awakening where you're like, oh, this actually could free me from some of these things that are like plaguing my life that I don't know a way out. Like it's not just good conversation, but it is like tools mm -hmm. to help us become the truest version of ourselves. And so uh, as much as like, it feels good to name these things and talk about it, like f even for me, like sitting, you know, I know sitting tomorrow morning in the window of time that I always like try to carve out for myself, like this will be the stuff that I lean into. Mm -hmm. And the trust and the hope is that over patterns of time, like you, you make these things the new reality mm -hmm. it's the new way of operating in the world and then that changes like how we show up in the spaces we show up to the people we show up with so totally yeah yeah well, you were talking to me about akim pierre mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. before this and uh he actually planted a seed in my mind like early earlier in my practice and i remember him emphasizing to me the importance of body and at the time it was before i had met my teacher rev angel kyoto williams and uh and so i remember being a little confused because i was so heady with my meditation like it was all about like mental conscious awareness and like that was it and like body didn't like body kind of got in the way right like yeah. why can't this body sit comfortably for an hour <laughs> right. yeah. um and then and i remember him like stating that importance and how much of a seed it planted for me and how much that seed has blossomed and so i just want to give a shout out yes. to him but also that like he he embodies embodiment like you know you can really feel once you once you get a taste of embodiment for yourself you can feel when other people are embodied or disembodied around you um, and again no judgment like we all come like we're all in the same society right like no judgment at all um but I just think once you start to direct your conscious awareness to be a little more embodied moment to moment, so many things just good and bad, mm -hmm. <laughs> like challenging and easeful come up, but it's like you're really living life, not through your concepts, but through your direct contact with life itself. Yeah. yeah. 
All right, Juno. So for for those listening that are, this is all resonating, they're connecting with this, they want to start somewhere. What are some first steps to becoming embodied, some tools for embodiment that we can have to take away, whether that's a breath in the morning, a cup of tea, Mm. practicing gardening, what are some, some tools and steps that we can engage with to get in body? Yeah, it's a good question because it's so, it, it's a complex question to answer because, you know, if we're saying that there are certain blocks that happen for people, everyone kind of, I mean, there's patterns of blocks, but for the most part, people have different blocks. And so what works for one person won't work for another. And people have different uh, privilege, advantage, as Resma Menachem calls it. I like that, like different advantages in life. And, um, and their bodies have different issues in their tissues. Hmm. And so certain races, for example, who have had um, intergenerational, deep intergenerational, I mean, I think every, <laughs> everyone has intergenerational trauma. And certain races have just a little more intense intergenerational trauma, to say the least. Mm-hmm. And, and so, like, what's happening in their body might be completely different from what's happening in, in my body. And so I can't say, like, one thing that will work for everyone. That being said, I would say start from where you are, wherever you are, and, and invite, like, the sense of curiosity and play. Um, and I think starting from where you are, what I mean specifically is for some people, the body is not a safe place to be with your attention awareness. There's a lot of things that could be there <laughs> that, you know, are challenging to, to meet. And so to just say like to someone like, oh, go on like a silent retreat or practice Buddhism or like do Tai Chi, like whatever it might be, like it, it might be perfect for them, but it might also be way too much. And so the key for me is, quiet enough to hear yourself still enough to feel yourself and i think meditation's a, a very simple way to to play with that but don't get to a point where you're starting to force yourself to do it mm-hmm. like release that tyranny and this is again almost everything i'm saying is from reverential kyoto williams my teacher but one thing uh, she talks about for meditation especially for beginners is have like a three strike rule and so like you sit down and you meditate and you know there's that first impulse of like doing something else like oh i don't want to do this anymore that's one keep watching your breath stay and then the second time comes there it is number two the third time it comes get up and do something else Mm. and if you do that every day a it's fairly simple because really like I think like withstanding three impulses to get up, withstanding two and then listening to the third one, it's not asking too much. And what you'll see over time is that the time you're sitting will get longer and longer. Instead, what most of us do when we first start is we start with the time period and then we impose the tyranny of the clock onto Mm -hmm. our bodies Mm -hmm. of like, nope, I'm making you sit through this pain, this discomfort. And we're going to hit that 20-minute mark, whether you like it or not. <laughs> exactly. And so, like, releasing that oppressive quality of, mm-hmm. of 
our practice and creating a bit more ease and listening to the body, right? Like that's literally listening to your body of like the, the body's impulse of like, no, let's get out of here. <laughs> and so I think that's a really great, great place to start. Yeah. And then what I would start adding on is um, to just increase, like whenever you remember, and again, this is another Rev. Angel Kyoto Williams uh, teaching, whenever you notice that you're disembodied, which is like going to be most of the time when you start the moment you notice don't perseverate don't be like oh, i i was disembodied again like none of that just cut it right there and just come back to your body maybe feel into and again different body parts will connect differently for people and so maybe it's the soles of your feet on the ground maybe it's your sit bones on your seat maybe it's your back uh, against the floor or your bed whatever it might be and so Start with just placing your attention awareness there and noticing if there's words or concepts because you can't be both intellectual and embodied at the same time. And so it's kind of like a, a giveaway. If there's words, if there's like internal monologue, if there's concepts floating around, like you're not in the direct experience of the body. And so just do it. At first, it might be a second or two and then you're like... <laughs> I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> and then just keep returning and, and kind of see what happens. Mm. Um, I think it's really helpful to have, you know, a practice, a teacher, uh, um, but that doesn't resonate with everyone. If it does, then yeah, lean into find teachers that really embody embodiment. And that's also a, a journey of its own mm -hmm. uh, to find that. But um, find a teacher that really uh, practices deep embodiment and um yeah it's a practice it's a practice for sure but one that yeah the rewards are immeasurable mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's a journey well worth taking for sure mm -hmm. and just continuing down yeah yeah mm. well thank you juno i feel like we can go in a million directions yeah and uh you know i want to give this episode this conversation some space <laughs> To connect, some spaciousness, some spaciousness yes. to connect and to resonate, and I know there's much more that's that's been unsaid, um, that we will save for episode three. Yeah. Before we go, I guess you know we've got a few parting questions that we like to share. But is there anything that was unsaid today that you feel important uh, that there's importance to share in this conversation? Mm. Yeah, I think a couple things. Um, one on the last point, uh, there's a term called the window of tolerance, and uh, Daniel Siegel was the one who came up with that, or who at least popularized the term. Uh, and uh, the window of tolerance is so helpful because it essentially talks about this little space where um, growth can happen. And so if you're not activated in any sense at all, there's just nothing. There's just like nothing happening in, in your system not nothing but your active your nervous system doesn't feel anything and then there's a gap between where it starts to feel something and where it gets to its capacity where it just you get lost into fight flight or freeze and so that gap that window of tolerance where you can tolerate the nervous system activation and that can be felt in many different ways it could be felt as um 
as tension, as discomfort in your chest. It could feel, you know, depending on your, your ways of sensing and feeling into different emotions and, and activations. And once you hit that limit, that's where, you know, what we call uh, people getting triggered. Like when you're triggered and you're, you're kind of outside of yourself, you're reactionary, that's coming from a place where your nervous system gets pushed past its, its limits. And so going to how you can be more embodied and how to um, learn how to be more, let's say, emotionally intelligent, you know, if anxiety is something that really challenges you and like debilitates you, puts you in a freeze response or something like that, then maybe that's not where you want to start. Mm. And so you just start where your window of tolerance can, can accommodate that and then feel it like with your direct experience, your undivided attention. And then once you start to practice that, then your window of tolerance keeps growing. And that's really what I view as resilience. And in, if, I, if I were to go back to self-discipline being a myth, we can use the window of tolerance as our guide of how can we grow to accommodate this thing we want to learn or mm -hmm. the skill we mm -hmm. want to be proficient at. And so instead of like, again, like oppressing and forcing, which, you know, how you do anything is how you do everything. And so if you're oppressive in, in your body, then like where else are you being oppressive? And, and if we can let that go and find a more harmonious way, and, you know, if you get good at it, I would say more effective then all of a sudden you're able to do it with a little less suffering <laughs> <laughs> and create maybe a little less suffering around you. Which is always a good outcome. That's amazing. Thank yeah. you, Juno. So before we let you go, um, I just want to make sure we, we shout out all the amazing things that you do and all the places that people can find you. Mm -hmm. You know, we've been talking a lot about Embodiment, mindfulness, meditation. Um, I think you bring a lot of these practices into your, your photography. You know, we didn't talk about your art or your practice beyond beyond uh, the body. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess photography is, is an extension. Embodied. Oh, it's very embodied. Yeah, um, for sure. Do you want to just give a quick, a quick um, shout out to your photography? Um, yeah. Your, your meditations going on... Yeah, we can find you on Sphere. No, Sphere is going to happen soon. Yeah. Um, last year, I finished a emotional well-being coaching training program with Wave Life, okay. um, who I think is affiliated with Sphere. And so, um, I I actually personally delayed that for uh, six to nine months because uh, I just felt like I was pushed at my limit of my own practice. So I wanted to dedicate some spaciousness and some time and lack of urgency to that. Um, and so now that I feel like I'm coming out of that, I'm definitely ready to, to join Sphere. And so, yeah, you'll be able to find me on Sphere. And I would say my specific niche would be around um, a focus on thriving, a focus on uh, emotional well-being, and a focus on embodiment mm -hmm. through mindfulness. And so if, you know, you kind of dug what you heard here um, and you need a little bit more guidance to, to be able to integrate that into your life. Um, that'll be definitely uh, somewhere to go. I don't know when this episode's going to be released, and I don't know when I'm actually going to be on there. So at the time of the release, I may not be on there, but just know that I will. Um, but you can also reach out to me on my Instagram, which is uh, where you can also see my 
photography work. Mm-hmm. I think um, my photography work, you know, to be uh, honest, I don't think I've said this in a public venue, but uh, to be honest, when I first started doing photography, it was a way out of the kitchen for me, right? A way to um, leave a career that I faced continual um, burnouts in. And so it wasn't, um, I would say it wasn't a passion. It was kind of just a, a paycheck, a way out, a ticket out, <laughs> yeah. if I'm being very honest. Um, this was back in 2017 when I started. Um, and not to say that I didn't care about it, but it was very like work focused. Yeah. Um, and then I would say in the last two years that it started to really, you know, become its own thing in my life. And it it becomes an extension of my practices, um, my mindfulness, my embodiment to really like, not only to, you know, cause it'll be a lot of times for clients. And so to really like feel into their story and like what they're trying to communicate through visual storytelling to arrive at the space, to really feel the conditions mm-hmm. of the space mm-hmm. in my body. And then really not, you know, allowing the mind to just, conceptualize like oh what do I need to do which is challenging when there's a shot list but you know you kind of like integrate the shot list into like my presence in that space and like what I'm receiving what my body's receiving what my body is like drawn to and and then just capturing that and sharing it and so it's become this like really um soul satisfying uh pursuit I almost called it a hobby pursuit career um, and so that is what I do primarily for income. Um, and that is on purpose so that I'm able to offer a lot of mindfulness um, offerings to people. Because um, I don't want to add to the the wealth and hellness space. <laughs> and, and, and I think uh, I think for me, it's important that uh, mindfulness, especially, but all forms of well-being are available to anyone no matter your race your social class your location um and so yeah so photography is what i kind of do for um my paid work uh and then mindfulness is something that i'm i up to now have been doing pretty much pro bono but um there are a couple things a couple paid things that i've been developing one shout out is to uh Connor Emini. He's uh, um, he's from Toronto, but he's been living in Vancouver for a while now. And he just became the youngest person in the world to become or to be to have finished an Ironman triathlon on every continent. Wow. Yeah. So he holds wow. that world record. And I had the pleasure of meeting him um, through work lab. So uh, Lori Ray Clark and I host uh, some sound baths. Lori does the bowls and I do guided meditation to the sound baths. And uh, Connor uh, showed up to a sound bath and that's how we connected. And he ended up becoming my first uh, like uh, mindfulness coachee. And, uh, and so I was able to you know, I, I don't take any credit for what he did. He was <laughs> going to do that with or without me. But I hope that my uh, my work with him and our relationship through mindfulness uh, helped him yeah, no a, a little bit, maybe, no maybe doubt. a little, a little more ease in that in that pursuit. Yeah. Um, and so Connor and I are gonna be developing, are in the midst of developing uh, a running retreat, but really focused not so much on running performance or outcomes or like finishing 
an Ironman triathlon <laughs> or anything like that. Um, but really as a way for people to feel into their bodies through embodiment, through mindfulness, through breath work. Uh, we'll have probably some cold exposure um, and meditation uh, and, of course, running and from one of the best people I know uh, to teach it. And, and so we're developing something that hopefully imparts um, tactile ways to learn how to be a bit more mindful and a bit more embodied uh, when you're in movement and when you're in stillness. That's amazing. I'll be there, hopefully. Mm, that's hopefully a, in, in body and in mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and that's, so that's great. Instagram will be where I announce all those things. Cool. Um, we'll link so, it. We'll yeah, link it find the that show. And, then, and then stay tuned. Okay. Sweet. I got to give one final shout out. Yes. yes. One final shout out to Nicole Napez, who's my partner of... Uh, we just celebrated a few months ago our four-year anniversary, and and um, yeah, just got to give a big shout out to her because I feel like I I never do on these podcast interviews, <laughs> and she really plays one of the biggest roles in my life. Um, she's you know so loving, so caring, so tender, and on top of that, she's been through uh, a lot of my my growth. I mean, even when I first, when we first started seeing each other, I was a fairly different person. I was bef at the very beginning of my healing journey and, and I was, you know, different in a lot of ways, a lot of things that I healed through. And, and she was so welcoming and open to seeing all of my <laughs> trauma releases, which can get pretty gnarly mm. and, um, and really being there for me in all the ways. And so, yeah, just got to share a big, love uh, big i love you to to nicole napas yeah that's so cool it's great when people who are like our people can watch us grow and celebrate oh, that with us and, yeah. and journey alongside in that and yeah and i wouldn't be you know where i'm at today without her support throughout all of that that's i got through some really challenging things and uh yeah really was able to lean onto her for some support so yeah better together yeah Dina, do you want to land this should we land it with our usual i know juno answered it a year ago but let's see should we see what's a, changed a little, in a year a little more i don't body. remember the questions okay let's let's yeah. go let's go Dina. we'll right. we'll land it and then we'll go our separate ways till next time yes until next time for sure which definitely we need it next time uh juno the pod called it a little more good right <laughs> Because that's what we want to see, do, create, be in the world. But uh, we asked you before, we'll ask you again. What does that mean to you in this moment, in this space? <laughs> a little more good. In this moment, what's uh, arising is, I think, just along the lines of our conversation a little more embodied, and that's to say a little more connected, a little more accepting of every dimension of our humanness. And in that way, hopefully we can all move towards a way of being that is harmonious, not only to our own selves, our own bodies, but to each other, to this planet, to the cosmos mm. and beyond. Yeah, I love it. Thank you, Juno. Appreciate you so much. 
appreciate you too yeah. thank you so much until next time <laughs> yes. Juno Kim wouldn't you think Dina man uh, well how do you not love Juno I know like just his um, just the deep presence that he brings with him and like we're we're chilling and laughing and connecting you know before and even after the podcast but then even in those moments like you know before the pod he's just like let's just let's just take a second here and kind of like grounds us in this beautiful body scan meditation which was you know it's his practice that's what he did last time he was with us as well and you know, it just set up the conversation so well and even going back and, and revisiting it, like I just am reminded of not not only the great things that Juno has to say, but like just the great person that Juno is. Yes. And so I'm just so grateful uh, that, you know, we get to be in his orbit and um, feel feel better as a result of that. I like that idea of being in someone's orbit. You're just kind of buzzing around them, checking in like yeah. every, you know, every time you pass. Right. It's good. Well, if you enjoyed uh, this conversation with Juno, uh, check him out on Sphere. Uh, you can be one of his uh, his mentees or, mm-hmm. or get some one-on-one coaching uh, with, with Juno. Um, he also has some great photography services uh, that you can find through through his Instagram. Yeah. Um, so check out, check out all the things, all the amazing things that Juno Kim is always offering. And I'm sure... He'll be back for round three. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. But in the meantime, we will wait. With some spaciousness. That's right. Yeah. But I'm looking forward to it. Any any chance to sit down and chat with him is always, always a gift. But um, speaking of gifts, we're grateful for each one of you and uh, your ability to show up and listen and track and share and like and all of that stuff. We just, uh, we are so thankful, so grateful for your time, your attention. We know that is our greatest resource and commodity. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, and as we said, always, if you can like, uh, subscribe, give a review, give us a shout out on social media. We love to see it. We love to know that, uh, as episodes have resonated with you. So don't be shy in the shares and all that kind of stuff. We appreciate each and every single one. So, Be good, y'all. All right. Until next week. Peace. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.